Thanks, Father Aaron. It's great to be here again. Um, so I want to begin with a, uh, by quoting a famous 20th century philosopher, one of my favorite philosophers who, had, uh, who has shaped the minds of millions and millions of people in this country and the English-speaking world, largely before, before they turn the age of five years old. I'm going to read from his book, Horton Hears a Who, by uh, Dr. Seuss, uh, one of my favorite books. And um, so let me just read the, the first couple pages. Horton's an elephant, okay, just in case you haven't read the book. So Horton stops splashing. He, well, let me start with the first page. So on the 15th of May in the jungle of Newell, in the heat of the day, in the cool of the pool, he was splashing enjoying the jungle's great joys when Horton the elephant heard a small noise. So Horton stopped splashing. He looked toward the sound. That's funny, thought Horton. There's no one around. Then he heard it again, just a very faint yelp, as if some tiny person were calling for help. I'll help you, said Horton, but who are you? Where? He looked and he looked. He could see nothing there but a small speck of dust blowing past through the air. I say, murmured Horton, I've never heard tell of a small speck of dust that is able to yell. So you know what I think, why I think that you're, there must be someone on top of that small speck of dust, some sort of a creature of very small size, too small to be seen by an elephant's eyes. Some poor little person who's shaking with fear, then he'll blow in the pool. He has no way to steer. I'll just have to save him. Because after all, a person's a person, no matter how small. I'm not going to read the rest, I'm sorry. But uh, no spoiler alerts. But, um, you know, I don't know much about Dr. Seuss's faith. I don't know if he expressed faith in Jesus or what he thought about Jesus. But, but basically what he's doing in this story is he's riffing off this scripture passage that we just heard read. He is sort of giving us a creative interpretation of the passage that we just heard read. A person's a person no matter how small. That is the theme of the gospel uh, reading that you heard on page 10, which I want to walk through with you now if you want to turn to there. Because in this passage, three times Jesus refers to the phrase, little ones, little ones, little ones. And in the original language, the Greek word is really interesting because it's the word microi, from which we get our word micron or micro, a small person, a tiny person, an insignificant person, the kind of people we normally don't see in our busy, hectic life, the kind of people that we run by. And when Jesus, so in this passage, Jesus is going to tell us, when it comes to love, go little. When it comes to dreaming dreams, go little. When it comes to praying and ministering, the gospel, go little. Find little people. And what Jesus is going to tell us in this passage is to reorient our whole life around seeing and loving micro people, little people. Now, who are they? Who are little people? Who are the little people Jesus was talking about? So very first, we have to understand, what, what did Jesus mean when he was thinking about little people before we can jump to how it applies to our day? So it's important to note that in verse 6, Jesus talks about these people, these people, these little ones, they are people who believe in me, Jesus said. So first of all, they are people who have made themselves vulnerable for the sake of the gospel. They have made themselves vulnerable and threatened and marginalized for the sake of Jesus. 
Now, we don't really know very much about that in our culture, but there are people around the, ro- gl- the globe who can tell you very much what that means to be made vulnerable because you believe in Jesus, to be threatened because you believe in Jesus. I think of my friend Hassan John, who's an Anglican priest in Jos, Nigeria, who said, has a bounty on his head. He has a bounty on his head because he is ministering in a Muslim-Christian mixed neighborhood, and he is ministering to Muslim people the gospel, he's bringing it to poor Muslims, having, having Bible studies, having um, social services, and there's a bounty on his head from extremists. He's made himself vulnerable for the sake of Jesus. So first of all, it is for people that have made themselves vulnerable for the name of Jesus. And I, I don't want us to lose that. But secondly, I think there's also a broader application. And that is, as we look at Scripture, the big story of Scripture, there's this, this case to be made that it's, that it's for anyone who has made themselves vulnerable or ignored or threatened just by life. So it could be elderly people that are warehoused in some of our institutions. It could be prisoners who never got a fair trial and who are now unjustly imprisoned. It could be children with Down syndrome. It could be the mentally ill. It could be refugees. It could be the poor. It could be the unborn. These are unstrategic unstrategic people. These are people that really don't do, can't do a lot for us, or so we think. The New Testament scholar N.T. Wright defines them as any people who find themselves on the human scrap heap the world throws people on when it cannot think what else to do with them. It's people, we don't know what to do with them, so we warehouse them, we institutionalize them, we throw them on the scrap heap. Now, it's not natural for many of us to see these people. And that's why Jesus begins in verse 2. He doesn't just say, I want you to be a nicer person. I want you to be more compassionate. I want you to try harder. That's not what he says. He says, I want your whole life to change because you've encountered me. So he says, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So this is not just some program like we try harder to be nicer or we practice random acts of kindness. Jesus says, no, your life is going down the wrong road. I want you to turn. I want you to be converted. I want you to encounter me so that your whole life gets reoriented in a different direction with a different focus and a different mindset. And Jesus is going to tell us in this passage, I want your whole life particularly in one area, to be reoriented. I want you to be reoriented towards receiving and protecting and seeking little ones. So the first thing Jesus says is receive the little ones. In verse 5, he says, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Now the word receive is the word, it literally means to welcome warmly, to open your arms and to say, Ah, I've been waiting for you. Welcome. It's to lay out the red carpet. You know, in Hollywood, when they lay out a red carpet, it's for, like, really important people. It's for really famous celebrities and actresses and actors. And Jesus is saying, no, I want you to roll out the red carpet for little people, these people that are thrown on the scrap heap. I want you to start welcoming them. And Jesus said, Something remarkable happens when you receive them, when you receive one such of these little ones in my name, just one, one. You receive one of them. It's as if you, 
It's you receive me. I never noticed this before, but you know, there's a longer passage in Scripture that's very familiar to a lot of people. Matthew 25, where Jesus goes this long passage and basically says, you know, if you fed the hungry, you fed me. If you've given water to a thirsty person, you've done it to me. And it's a really long passage. Well, here, just Jesus says the same thing in miniature. It's the same thing. He's, he's saying, I am so closely connected, so bonded emotionally and spiritually with these little ones that when you do it to them, you do it to me. When you receive one of them, even one, it's like you receive me. When you despise one of them, you've despised me. When you hurt one of them, you hurt me. When you love one of them, you love me. I read this amazing uh, story in the Washington Post this, a couple weeks ago. It was a story of a, uh, college, uh, a college student and a janitor at Georgetown University. And the janitor's name was O'Neill Batchelor. He was a janitor that had worked at Georgetown for decades. He was an immigrant from Jamaica. Um, he had spent decades on the night shift, just cleaning up after students who are now at this, what is now a $65,000 a year university. And for years, he had never spoken to a student, and a student had never spoken to him. Well, this was this business major a guy named Fabian Bellamy, who also has immigrant roots. And one day, during the night shift, as, as uh, Fabian was studying, he noticed this guy over and over again coming to clean up after the students, pick up their trash, clean the windows, do all this kind of stuff. And somehow they started talking. And they started talking about what it was like to be kind of have immigrant roots, what it was like to come from another country, what it was like to be minority. Uh, he discovered that O'Neill, the janitor, actually had dreams of being an entrepreneur. They actually became friends. He started going to his O'Neill's church. He met his six-year-old daughter. And Fabian started this organization called Unseen Heroes. And he said in Washington Post, he said, once you start seeing people like this, you can't unsee them. And he started thinking, what other people are at this campus who serve us in ways that we never really acknowledge or don't even really notice? And so he started like this sort of organization to notice these people. I think it's just a beautiful example of what Jesus is talking about here. Start noticing. Start seeing. Start receiving. The second thing Jesus says, he says, don't just receive them, but protect them. Notice verse 7. Woe to the world for temptation to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptations come. Jesus sort of he switches gears, switches mood here almost into kind of a fierce mood. And there's this twofold woe. And woe means watch out. Woe means, as we say in Minnesota, you are skating on thin ice. You probably say that here too, but you're skating on thin ice, you know? You're going to fall. Watch out. The first woe is a general woe. Just woe to the world. Bad stuff happens. And Jesus says, it really stinks. I hate it. 
The second woe is specific. It's woe to you. Woe to me. Woe to us. If we do not protect these little ones, if we do not receive them, if we instead despise them and denigrate them and look down on them, if we cause them to stumble, woe to you, Jesus says. Jesus is fierce here. He is fiercely for his little ones. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Taken with Liam Neeson, you know? I have a very particular set of skills that make life miserable for people like you. Well, Jesus is not exactly being Liam Neeson here, but a little bit. <laughs> just a little bit, okay? And then notice verses 8 and 9. He says, and if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. Now, what is Jesus saying here? Well, this is a teaching technique called hyperbole. Jesus doesn't mean us to take this literally, but he's making a point. And the point is this. Sin hurts. Our sin hurts. It wounds us. It wounds our relationship with God. It wounds my relationship with God. But it also hurts people around me. It's always social. It's never private. There are no private sins. It hurts people around us. It's like if you're a manufacturer and you have a plant on the river and you dump toxic waste into the river, where's it going to go? It's going to go downstream. It always flows downstream. And it always hurts things downstream. Sin is like toxic waste that we dump into the river of life. And it will always flow downstream. It will not only hurt us, but it will hurt others. And sometimes it'll take a while for the smell to develop. Sometimes it'll take a while for the in, in environmental impact to, to become noticeable. But it will always have an impact. So Jesus is saying... He's just saying, I think he's saying here that sin, he's especially talking about sin as a social reality and that how my sin affects others. But what I think what Jesus is really getting at here is be courageous. Be courageous and fierce about fighting for my little ones. Deal with the sin in your life. Deal with the sin in society. Deal with unjust systems. Jesus is saying, will you join me in fighting for my little ones, in protecting them. Will you join me in this? You're not doing this by yourself. I'm doing it first. I'm out front, but will you come with me in this fight? You know, one of my heroes is a guy that I'd never heard of till about two years ago. He's a medical doctor named Dr. Jerome Lejeune. In 1958, he was a researcher who discovered that Down syndrome, a condition that affects, I think, about 700 babies in the United States, is actually caused by an extra 21st chromosome. Is that right, doctor? Okay. Trisomy 21. What? Trisomy 21P. Thank you, doctor. Okay. So um, he was immediately just um, raised to a place of distinction in the medical world. Became famous, started giving lectures, started giving workshops. In 1969, he won the William Allen Award, which is the highest prize for medical genetics. 
Most people thought he was clearly on track to win a Nobel Prize in medicine. But he was also a committed Christian. And he was horrified to discover that people were using this knowledge to abort children with Down syndrome. He was absolutely horrified. His daughter said that one day he remembered, she remembered her dad coming home for lunch one day from his medical practice, and his face was just ashen white with, with, with anger and with sorrow. And he said, and she quoted him, if I do not protect these children, I am nothing, he said. And he started publicly championing the rights of children with Down syndrome and unborn children with Down syndrome. He called it chromosomal racism and rejection of medicine. In a speech to his colleagues one day, he publicly castigated them for this practice of finding out that a child had Down syndrome and then aborting it. And he went home that day after that speech and he told his family, well, today I lost my Nobel Prize. But he never looked back. He never regretted it. Because he was following in the footsteps of Jesus and he was fighting fiercely for the little ones God had laid on his heart. So we protect the little ones. When we encounter Jesus, our life gets reoriented. Third thing, though, we not only welcome, we not only protect, but we seek the little ones. And that's what Jesus says in this last little parable, which is just a little mini version of the parable of the prodigal son. There's a, tells a story about a shepherd who has 100 sheep. 99 of them are safe and snug and at home and comfortable, but he's not satisfied. He's agitated. He's restless because there's one, one sheep that's lost. So he leaves the safety. He goes into the mountains, and he starts to seek for this one lost sheep. But it's dangerous. It's risky. He can die up there. He can get attacked by wild animals up there. But there's one missing. Now, did you notice how many times in this text Jesus uses the word one? One. Uh, verse 2, one child. Verse 5, one such child. Verse 6, one of these little ones. Verse 10, one of these little ones. Verse 12, the one who went astray. Verse 14, one of these little ones. See the point he's trying to make? It's, if it's just one, I'll go get it. The God of the Bible doesn't look at people as just a mass of people or just groups or just, he looks at one. I just, Jesus is saying, this is a picture of what my heavenly father is like. And this is a picture of my mission, God in human flesh. You know, if you've ever seen the movie The Water Diviner with Russell Crowe. It's an amazing movie. Um, and it really got to me because it's a story about Russell Crowe who plays an Australian farmer in the 1920s named Joshua Connor. And during World War I, as an Australian, he had allowed his three sons, and I have three sons, that's why it's kind of got to me, he had three sons to enlist in World War I with the Allied forces. And um, they fought with the United States and Great Britain in the Allied forces. And um, all three of his sons fought in the same battle, the Battle of 
Gallipoli in, in Turkey, where 100,000 people on both sides, 100,000 soldiers died, 50,000, about 50,000 Allied forces, 35,000 Brits, about 10,000 Australians, and all three of his sons were missing. No word from them, and presumed dead. So after the war, um, Joshua Connor, the farmer, has his oldest son's diary and he, on which he records where he was on the last day before all three of the boys disappeared. And so he sets off from Australia. He leaves Australia, leaves the safety of his farm, goes to this strange country of Turkey where he knows absolutely nobody, where his life is being threatened, where he's constantly in danger, and he goes and he meets a Turkish officer who was at the battle that day and who wants to help him find his three sons. But the British officer, who's just a complete jerk, um, in his charge of burying the dead, wants Joshua Connor to leave. So he rudely escorts him or tries to escort him out of the country. And then there's this powerful scene where the Turkish officer asks the British officer, why don't you want to help him? Why won't you help this father who's looking for his sons? And the British officer says, I can't go about helping every father who won't stay put and let the authorities handle this matter. And the Turkish guy says, yes, but he is the only father that has actually come looking. The only father that has actually come here seeking his lost son. See, the heart of the good news of the Bible is not be a nicer person, be more compassionate, be better. The heart of the gospel is God has come seeking for you. Jesus in the flesh, God in the flesh has come seeking for you. That is the heart of of our message that God is seeking little ones and then we are called to join him in that search now let me ask you this let me close with this who are the little ones in your life and let me tell you I don't know I've never met most of you but I'll tell you I know who a little one is in your life I know I know the first little one that you need to attend to is you. You are a little one. You see, we like to think, well, I'm a big one, and the little ones are down here, and I'm a big one, I'll help the little ones, and that makes me feel really good because I'm a big one helping the little ones. And Jesus says, no, you're a little one. You need to start there. Remember what he said in verse Three and two and three and four, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is saying, This is so urgent, your whole life depends on getting this right, of starting with you. It's like, you know, when you're on the airplane and they always say, The oxygen mask should it drop, put yours on first, and then help your child, you know? Well, there's a reason for that, because you really can't help anybody else until you have your own oxygen mask on. And Jesus is saying, you're the little one that the living God welcomes 
in and through Jesus Christ. You're the little one that God has fought for, even by giving his own life. You're the little one. I'm the little one that has been sought by the living God. It starts with me. And as we come to receive the Eucharist, it's a beautiful way of just saying, I'm a little one. I want to be a little one, Jesus. Make me a little one. I accept that I'm a little one, and I receive from you. But let me ask you this. Who else is a little one in your life? Because it's not just you. Who are the little ones in your life? Who are the people like that college student at Georgetown? You just don't see. Maybe the people that have been, in one way or another, thrown on the scrap heap because our world doesn't know what to do with them. Who are they in your life? See, the amazing thing about the church, you're part of, as Father Aaron said at the beginning of this service, you're part of a mystical body of people. We don't all have to care about all little people. God may put on your heart refugees. God may put on your heart people that are trafficked and exploited. God may put on your heart the homeless. God may put on your heart people who are unjustly prisoned. God may put on your heart the poor. God may put on your heart the unborn. And then together as a body, as we scatter, we are the presence of Christ into those specific places. So what is your call? What is your call as a church? What is your charism? What is your gifts to reach the little ones? But then what is your call as a family or as a single person? So when it comes to dreaming, you know, every commencement address every year is all about dream big, dream something amazing, dream something huge, dream something spectacular. There's nothing wrong with that. But here Jesus is telling us, don't forget to dream little, too. Don't forget to go little. Don't forget to think little. Don't forget to see little people. So be released. As you worship, as you gather, as you receive communion, be a little person. Then as you're sent forth, go to serve the little people. Amen.